Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. Our guest today is Dr. Julian Abel, a recently retired consultant in palliative care, Vice President of Public Health Palliative Care International, co-author with Lindsay Clark of The Compassion Project, a case for hope and human kindness from the town that beat loneliness. You can find Julian on Twitter at drjulianabel. Julian, welcome. Welcome. Uh, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I've got a very minor correction. I'm no longer Vice President of Public Health Palliative Care International. So, uh, but otherwise, thank you for that uh, introduction. You're a former palliative care consultant. Has compassion always been high on your agenda or was there a particular stage of your career when it became prominent for you? Well, that's a great question. And um Actually, it's something I can remember from my childhood and um, just like being being motivated to, and I, I have no idea where it comes from, but it was just there, like, well, let's do something that's actually helpful. I think most kids have it, to be honest, but uh, and it just stayed with me. And so uh, my life has been kind of constant seeking to see what I can do that's meaningful and helpful. And so healthcare, going into healthcare was a direct expression of that. You know, that was, let's, oh, let's do something that's interesting and maybe it helps, you know. So, um, uh, and so I tried to approach it from the perspective of uh, not what I'm getting out of it so much as uh, what I can put into it that's helpful to people. And I've just been learning along the way ever since <laughs> i'm still a beginner can you tell us a little about your career julian so uh i, I laugh because uh I, i'd hesitate to call it a career but somehow it's worked out um so i went into medicine and thought oh great this would be great you know interesting and be helpful to people and i discovered that actually there was a really steep hierarchy i mean we're going back to the late 70s and early 80s there and um and i found the hierarchical structure of which the patients were nowhere near the top really strange and services set up to really kind of benefit the benefit the people who run the service in some way um, rather than thinking about how do we make this easy for people to join in. But then what happened was uh, I got I got interested in Chinese medicine and uh, and I kind of went, oh God, I've had enough of this really weird hierarchy. Um, I went and studied uh, acupuncture and also something called cranial osteopathy, and I did that for a while. And then I came across uh, um, a book about this guy, Stephen Levine, who... Um, effectively ran some kind of community support for people who were um, undergoing the experience of death, dying, loss and caregiving. And for anyone who's interested, there's a book called Meetings at the Edge. And it's a, it's a really great book. And it, it really struck me. And I felt sufficiently motivated to um, go and study palliative care as a specialty, uh, which I did. And then... 
uh, I ended up, you know, doing my training around the place and, and became a palliative care consultant in Western Supermare, where I was uh, in a service that that ran across uh, hospice community and hospital. So it was a kind of unified service. And so we made a great team and, uh, uh, and, and I got interested um, about a decade ago in the com- community component of it all, because I really kind of came to understand that the thing that makes the biggest difference is not the professional support, but the love, laughter and friendship is the thing that is absolutely key. And, and I've just been learning more and more about that ever since. And, um, and I, I, it just becomes increasingly important and on so many different levels, you know. We think it's a, we think it's a nice thing to have the love, laughter and friendship. Oh, that'd be nice, you know. But actually, it goes deep into who we are as human beings. And mm. it's embedded in our in our nervous system we have a pro-social nervous system it's a phrase i came across recently i like that but it's embedded in our biochemistry and our genetics and it's absolutely absolutely fundamental to how we've evolved as human beings and and so it's natural that the love laughter and friendship makes an enormous difference to us it's it's like we kind of go oh my god this is who i am this is hundreds of millions of years of evolution. No wonder I feel at home when I'm like this. So your book, The Compassion Project, is largely based on the compassionate uh, Frome model initiated by Dr. Ellen Kingston and Jenny Hartnell in Frome and that you helped to lead. What inspired you to write the book? So we, we had uh, a really uh, interesting set of experiences so we knew that uh, we were doing something good, uh, you know, and Helen, Helen and Jenny started it, you know, it was a good two years before I had anything to do with it. And just from the stories that were coming out and, you know, all our ideas and, and then we were going through the annual funding agony um, where you have to put your reasons for uh, continuing your service every year. So Helen thought it would be a good idea to write a paper so she uh, put this paper together and I thought, oh, you know, I think maybe I can get some different data. And I got the data and we were completely flabbergasted to find that the population emergency admissions in Froome had gone down by 14 percent, whilst in the rest of Somerset, they'd gone up by by 29 percent. And uh, I knew from previous work that this is the medical magic bullet. This is the single biggest problem affecting health services and that uh, there are no interventions. There ha- up until this point, there were no interventions that have reduced population emergency admissions. It's like, like health services have thrown the towel in and gone, oh, God, we can't do anything about that, so let's do something else. And it's like, oh, my goodness me, what, what's all that? You know, and so we went, oh, okay, let's let people know about this stuff because it's magic. It's like the magic has happened. And it was met with a kind of dull thud. <laughs> so so uh, we were, you know, con- going through the, you know, having gone that far with the funding round, we then realised that actually we need to make this information public uh, because, 
it's really useful information for people to see it and to know what the what the basic components of what we were doing was and so i ended up writing an article uh, along with lynn clark for resurgence magazine that was reported on by george monbiot as an article in the guardian and we ended up getting worldwide publicity and um and actually it made all the difference the publicity was the thing that made the difference for the funding because we had you know uh, helen went up to um number 10 and got a point of light award and and we had we had uh, policy advisors from NHS England coming down, the new medical director of NHS England, and press from all over the world. And and I think um, the CCG found it hard to go, we need to chuck this idea in and not fund it <laughs> because there was so much publicity around it. And so uh, so I, I then understood that actually publicity is a much more powerful tool when used in a good way uh, than uh, writing a scientific paper. The, the average number of times a scientific paper is read is 3.5. So it would have influenced at least 3.5 people, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's not much. <laughs> so so, so then um, somebody had read the article in Resurgence and said, oh, God, that'd make a great idea for a book. So I got in contact and we thought, well, that absolutely fits in with the general direction of what we're trying to achieve, um, which is... Um, letting people know about this incredible stuff, this incredible potential that we have as human beings and and how we've gone down a really bizarre route where we've become disconnected with, uh, with our essential humanness and that's created horrific problems. And so if we find our way back to connecting up with our huge potential um, just within our daily lives. Well, let's talk about that. Let's let people know about it. Let's let people know how they can join in. Let's, you know, people can make a difference themselves about how they do all of this. Can you provide our listeners with a brief history of Compassionate for Home? Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, what happened was uh, um, uh, Jenny, uh, Helen Kingston, lead GP, was um, working in a small practice and, um, uh, moved to a bigger combined practice in Froome and was really concerned about uh, patient continuity. In other words, you know, if you've got a small practice of three or 4,000 people, everyone knows everyone else and, and you know people's families and, you know, all of that sort of stuff, and it's, it's, it's very personable. But what happens in a big practice is that you kind of lose, uh, lose track of people, and so you don't know what's going on in their lives and how you can contextualise the medical care, et cetera, et cetera. So the next step is, uh, well, Jenny, th- uh, Helen thought, I know what we'll do is we'll see if we can kind of think about bring community in because there's so much more to people's lives than just a tablet so she hired jenny hartnell jenny's got background in community development and jenny then just set about kind of mobilizing the community she's a tremendous organizer with a huge amount of common sense and um uh, so it, it's those two things together really uh, like thinking about well there's all this stuff going on in the community you know you've got your choirs and your your walking groups and whatever going on there's hundreds of groups and knit and natter groups you know what doesn't matter the men's shed okay there's all this stuff going on and then there are people coming into the practice of any age who are a bit lonely and isolated or 
they can't work out their problems. Well, why don't we just connect all this up? It's to come, when you think about it like that, it's like, well, of course it's the right thing to do. And then what happens is that people, if you find out what people are interested in or if they're feeling lonely or whatever it is, and then they make friends, and then through those friendships, they develop some really special feeling about life, about uh, they really treasure those friendships and those activities that people do together. Well, that's transformational on health. You know, I've, like we, we didn't know it at the time, but subsequently I've learned that, you know, it's just like our whole body is, that's how we evolve. That's how we go, ah, oh, that's it. That's that was so that was such a good experience, but it's not just in our mind; it's in our body as well, and naturally, our health improves. So, the community connectors of which there, and that's a voluntary role, I believe. There are a thousand in a population of a hundred thousand, and health connectors, a smaller group, play a key role in the FRO model. Could you explain what they do? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so. What Jenny did was uh, she she gathered a service directory together. She had it all on bits of paper all over the place, all the stuff going on in the community. So why not stick it in one place? And then you go, well, why not make it available to the public so they can see what's – so the people of Froome can see what's happening in the town of Froome. So uh, the next step uh, was that she had the service directory and they had all the groups on there, and people said to her, you know, I don't want to go to a group. I just want to – chat with people so she then um uh, started up uh, a talking cafe well why not just go down the cheese and grain on a monday morning and have a table where people can chat you just introduce yourself and you know and she sat there and then well if you've got the talking cafe you've got health connections mend it which is a community development service you've got the web directory why don't we just let people know that all this stuff is there in the town of Froome. It's like, of course. And so she she called these people community connectors, and they're not so much volunteers of activated citizens. So you think about, okay, if people know about the talking cafes, the web directory and some stuff is going on in Froome and Health Connections mend it, well, it means that if you're sat in a cafe and a cafe owner has been trained as a health as a community connector and you start just chatting about, you know, whatever it is that's going on in your life that's difficult, the cafe owner is going to go, I don't know the answer to your problem, but I know where you might be able to get some help. And if you think about expanding that out, you know, it's a training of a 20 minute, any average about an hour where people can just attend and and. We know that that people who are trained as community connectors have conversations about 20 times a year about stuff that's going on, about signposting people or sending a talking cafe or whatever it is. Well, they're now in the town of Froome, a a town of uh, uh, 28,000 people. There's more than 700 people trained as community connectors. So that's 20,000 conversations a year. That's 14,000 conversations a town of 28,000 people. And each one of those conversations... It's a little explosion of compassion. It's a little explosion of oxytocin with all the ripple effects that go around it. And so what you have is you have a kind of deep dive into the community where you're embedding this stuff in people's daily lives just through conversation. It's incredibly powerful. The other aspect of it is, uh, you know, if you've got some somebody 
who's got particular problems and or is lonely and they don't know what to do next. If you say, oh, well, there's stuff going on in the community, they go, yeah, but, oh, God, I don't have the confidence to go out in the community. I don't want to look at a web directory. I don't want to go out to a group, meet a whole load of new people. I, I don't know what I want, but it's not that. So you go, okay, well, why don't we have somebody come around and just have a chat with you and see if we can help that process of clarifying what it is is important to you, what matters most, and and what what is it that you would like to... So we can see if we can prioritise stuff and focus on stuff, and I'll help you through whatever you decide to do. Well, those are, communi- those are health connectors. Those are people who are trained in motivational interviewing. It's, like, it's kind of common sense again. You know, it has to be common sense and simple. You sit down with somebody and say, wow, what's going on in your life? And what is it you'd like to do? And now let's see if we can do it because the town of Froome and the surrounding area is a treasure map of community resources. There is a wealth of, of people and place who offer support and friendship and do stuff together and so we can i'm sure that within all the stuff that's going on if we can kind of figure out what's important to you together we can then find a way of linking you up with other people who are who are going through similar things or interested in similar things so that's the essence of it really and you talked about a 14 percent reduction in a and e admissions have there been other tangible outcomes of compassionate Frome to date? Yeah, so you you know that one of the really convenient things about the reduction in population emergency admissions is it's tangible and uh, it's a figure that health services understand and they go, oh, that's important. If you, if you're a healthcare provider, you know that's nice, but actually, are you making a difference in people's lives? That's a more important thing. And so there are loads of stories about how people's lives are transformed. And and you can do measurements of stuff like Warwick and Edinburgh Mental Health and Wellbeing Scale or scales of community connectedness or, you know, there's a whole variety of different ways you can look and see about what's happening. Does it make a difference? The emergency admission stuff is just, a, if you like, it's a very welcome side effect of uh, uh, this other stuff, which is much more profound which is about transforming people's lives, people feeling like their lives are transformed, that they're connected, that that sense of lack of belonging is transformed into a sense of connectedness and about how life has more meaning and value through that sense of belonging. I I say the book is largely based on Compassionate Frome, but you extend the conversation into other areas, notably business, education, the environment and politics. I particularly enjoyed the account of the work uh, of your son, Buick, who is a primary school teacher. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so we were chatting about all of this stuff and, you know, and he felt like he wanted to do something. So, uh we tried to think about what would it mean to children to learn this stuff. And he felt that there was a, a staged process. So uh, he, he works in a school that is, uh, I'm trying to find the right word because I, wa- I don't want to call, call it social deprivation. It's a, a derogatory term that I really don't like. Um, but uh, anyway, it's a hard-pressed community. Uh, and, and so 
he thought that the first step would be for children to recognize their emotions, to develop a sense of emotional literacy. So he went through a process with the children about, and these, these are like seven and eight-year-olds, saying, well, when you're shaking like that, you know, when you're red in the face and you can't keep still, that's because you're angry. You know, that's anger. And if you're feeling if you're feeling warmth, friendship, you know, that's kindness and compassion and just getting children to recognize their emotions. And then and then uh, he did this thing, which was really clever, which was about, okay, so uh, why don't we recognize our emotional states and about which ones are conducive to making school happy and which ones are harmful? And so we talked to the kids about it, and the kids came up with this idea of having having a check-in, morning check-in. And they asked them, like, three questions in the morning. They sit around on the table, and they go, uh, how are you this morning? And they ask each member on the table how they are. And and then the, the, uh, then the child might say, well, God, you know, I'm so tired because my little new sister has been up all night, and I love her dearly, but I'm absolutely knackered. Or something terrible happened at home and I'm feeling completely out of sorts. And and then they say, well, is there anything we can do to make it better? And through that process, it's a, it's a, I think these, these questions are something that we can all practice because then you actually develop the skills of listening. And when you speak, you know that people are hearing and sympathetic to what you're going through. So you develop the skills of compassion and and that those skills are transformed into actions that you can take to. And of course, what happens is, you know, it it makes sense. Like you figure out what's a good learning environment, what isn't a good learning environment, how much your emotions come to play in that and, and what you can do to support each other to make it better. And guess what? the classroom gets happier and the learning outcomes are massively improved. And actually, I think what we've got there is a complete symbol for the problems that our society has got into. And we're talking about leadership here. And you think about, and and this this problem happens everywhere. Uh, You have this thing, uh, the Department of Education and government ministers, I mean, you only got to look at them and hold, hang your head in shame. They're saying, you've got to learn this, this, and this. And then they go through this process of forcing information into children. And you've got to achieve this standard. And what they don't have and what they don't understand because they're lacking in this themselves is understanding that relationships, if you want to lead a long, healthy, happy life, it's all about relationships. And so you should learn the skills of relationships in schools and in your workplaces and everywhere else, but in schools, because then if you feel happy and connected, if you know how you can participate in that sense of being happy and connected, then things like educational achievement improve dramatically. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're just turning school into some kind of nonsense pass and fail in which you create a class of people who are elitist and succeed and a whole 
other class of people who feel like they're less than uh, anyone else. And what does that sound like? That the what you have is is that the people who are leading these services are the same people who have been through this educational elitist system, and they're creating a model in their own image. And of course, they're dissociated from what's going on inside them. They haven't learned the skills of what gifts can you bring to the community? What gifts has a community got? How can we develop great relationships with each other? Because what we have in common is much greater than what our differences are. How can we appreciate the richness of communities? And, and of course, if you can do that and participate in that way, that makes a huge difference to everything that you do. At the close of your book, you feature a Compassionate Cities Charter. I know you have spoken on the Throne model internationally. Which cities have embraced compassion wholeheartedly? So um, there's a whole number of something like 25 or 30 cities around the world. I mean, I think we have to just, there's there's a, a Compassionate Cities movement, which is part of public health palliative care and focused mainly around end of life care. And there are 25 or 30 cities from all around the world who are participating in this kind of uh, stuff. And it's it's brilliant. It's, it's And interestingly, it's something that Sheffield is becoming increasingly interested in and there's a compassionate wales program that's getting running up and running there's also the charter for compassion which is a a kind of a slightly different as uh, a slightly different emphasis have a compassionate cities program which is uh, has got a different flavor to it and there are hundreds of cities around the world that are doing that to a smaller or greater extent um, so there are different ways of approaching it. But, I mean, we're quite focused on the using public health um, methodology for it. I do note that uh, NHS Wales has just launched a compassionate leadership set of principles that they've developed along with uh, Michael West, a former guest on this podcast. You formed an, an organisation, Compassionate Communities, UK, which you can find on the web at compassionate-communities.co.uk. What's the focus of its work right now? There's a number of different things happening at the same time, uh, a number of different themes. We're about to become uh, a membership organisation because uh, we think there are, there are lots of benefits from this you know, about gathering people together, um, particularly other organisations and and small groups who are interested in taking forward a compassionate communities approach, that there's something that comes from uh, sharing uh, expertise and developing skills together. And we're also going to uh, um, start running educational sessions. We've got a, the first of a series of four lectures coming out by Alan Keller here, about reframing um, death and dying, and um, uh, death, death about you know largely about death education. But we are going to run a whole series of different trainings related to compassionate communities and compassionate communities and end of life care. Some of which will be professional facing, and some of which will be public facing. Um, and we're there's the we've also I've got a podcast called Survival of the Kindest and. 
Um, that's part of it. And we, we look at the presence and absence of compassion and uh, the consequences of both. And, and that's engaged people in all kinds of different ways. It's been absolutely fascinating. We have really wide-ranging guests. And, and coming on from that, we are going to start running uh, weekly meetings and, and uh, meetings once every month or something like that, which are events where people can join in and participate because we want to create uh, a sense of community you know that uh, I, I love podcasts it's been one of the best things I've done but it feels very much about that it's a, a one-way communication and and what we want is to give a, a is to have people a chance of being part of that conversation rather than uh, just being a recipient of it and and so we're going to start with uh, doing all that kind of stuff and then we're going to be a representative body and we've also got a uh, significant expertise in a number of different areas and including um, governance and consultancy type work. One of our trustees, Ed Straw, is, uh, um, has spent a, a, a lifetime working with PricewaterhouseCooper uh, or Gibson Libran before. And, uh, but he's very, uh, we're absolutely on the same page about, you know, getting rid of hierarchies, working from the ground up, and how you put governance systems in place that allow you to do that. It's a, that's a huge problem. Power relationships are an enormous problem. And uh, how do you actually recognize that uh, uh, leadership is um, uh, facilitative rather than out in front telling people what to do? In other words, the difference between top down and ground up, it makes all the difference. So there's a whole variety of different things which are just beginning to pick up now, which are... Uh, which, which which will happen we've got a there's a film about uh, bereavement called beyond the mask which uh put together by jane and jimmy of the good grief project and uh they made a couple of films before and we can have an evening showing their new film uh, which is all about what happened uh, around bereavement during uh, covid19 and how people support each other um i'm just inquiring about putting on a film called the wisdom of trauma um, trauma is one of the hugely un unacknowledged areas in uh, all over the world, which has terrible consequences. And so I'm really interested to develop something around community sources of support for trauma. Not, if you're just reliant on professional services, it's never going to happen. There's no, not everyone who needs it is going to get widespread access. And then we're going to have, an, so we'll have, you know, show the film and have a trauma evening and where, where we can talk about those community resources. And, so there's there's a, a whole variety of different activities which which you know the compassionate communities UK will be a vessel for all of that. Great, I'll keep an eye out on your website. So Great. I've just read uh, Bessel van der Kolk, by the way. The body keeps the score. That's a great book on trauma. Absolutely, trauma. And another one called um, When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate. So we've, we've spoken about a number of books, films, and your podcast, Survival of the Kindness, there. Is there any other publication or podcast that you direct people to in this area? I mean, the, there are so many out there, so many fabulous ones out there. And um, I, I you know, really recommend uh, Fritzi Horstman. Um, uh, she does a compassion prison project and um 
And look out for, there's an incredible guy called Nahid Dosani, who's a palliative care consultant who really does fantastic work. There's a whole, a whole kind of engagement of, around end-of-life care in, in the U.S. called Endwell. I mean, you know, once you start looking, where do you stop? There's so much stuff going on. So just turning to you, what's your proudest achievement in your career? You know, I think somehow it's the small things. Uh, and I say small, but when somebody says, I just, you know, what you said, the way that you helped, that made so much difference. You know, that was not not like, it's kind of not like, oh, I did this and that was so great, but people found a way of creating a sense of belonging and a sense of connectedness. You know, they realized they weren't alone. So it's not the um, the kind of um, massive, oh, I did this and created that. It's like the small things which, which people f- managed to find a, ma- a minor input into them finding their own way. I was a little help along the way that made a difference you know that's that's for me that's uh you know how people can make their lives happier and more meaningful that feels like the best thing to do and would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake and what you've learned from it i mean we make mistakes all the time and uh, and uh, you know life is a constant process of learning and and the the kind of analogy i have for this is uh, when we learn to walk, we fall down lots. So, uh, you know, I can look back at everything and think, yeah, I could do that better. <laughs> I'm just learning. And there isn't, I can't, I can't go back and think, man, I did that perfectly. You know, oh, that was so good. That was perfect. I can think, yeah, well, if I knew then what I know now, I could probably have done that better. And uh, uh, so I constantly learn, you know. Is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? So many. I mean, I think in the world of palliative care, the person who who probably made the biggest difference to me is Alan Keller here, um, because he just uh, reframed about palliative care and really helped uh, to think differently about it all and think about what matters most and what are the the uh, kind of options for the different ways of helping people and so that's been uh, you know Alan, Alan and I have, have become great friends and uh, and you know it's a very productive partnership but I would say that from definitely from palliative care perspective then uh, Alan's played a really important role. And so a couple of questions that I ask to all my guests. What does your self-care regime look like? I'm retired from clinical practice. I'm still really busy, but but I live in the heart of Cornwall, not far from the sea. And, um, uh, and we have a slow trickle of family and friends who come and see us. And, uh, and I go surfing and... Uh, and running i've got a couple of dogs i like to meditate i mean you know it's a beautiful environment i mean we're in the middle of the summer and and um you know in cornwall now we have this kind of uh 
display of flowers which is so incredible it goes from from the um the the garlic and the bluebells in spring early summer to the pink campions to the foxgloves and it's just it's a, a kind of outrageous display of beauty and um and i think like when you think about all of those things together um it just feels like uh, uh it's got a quite a nice balance to it all you know uh, the shell just painted shell. a beautiful picture <laughs> finally then uh julian what advice would you give to your 20 year old self you know um so i think that there's uh not not just necessarily um to my 20 year old self but just generally good advice is is i think it's really helpful to understand that we are all already compassionate this is an inherent part of us this is something we live we swim in a sea of compassion that every time you hold the door open for somebody every time you make someone a cup of tea every time that you you serve people food before you serve yourself. Uh, every every time that you have a consideration for someone else, if you if you just look and see, you can see that you're already compassionate. And and then if if you understand that that compassion is key to a meaningful life, that it's built in the relationships to the people in place, and and that. If you want to have a happy life, be more compassionate. If you want to be healthy, be more compassionate. If you want to live a long time, be more compassionate. If you want to feel at the end of your life that your life was valuable and you spent this time on this earth in a good way, be more compassionate. That's absolutely brilliant advice. Thank you so much, Julian. And thanks for coming on the show today. I'm very excited that Sheffield is one of the cities that you're in conversation with regarding the Compassionate Cities model. And I'm generally grateful that there are people like you yourself working, some would say against the cultural grain, uh, but I think you'd argue with it to make the UK a more compassionate country. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. This episode was recorded in Sheffield using Squadcast, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. Mm-hmm.